Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov slash careers. Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. Hello there, it's me. Today we have a very interesting program. You know, they say small business leaders who start businesses uh, jump off a a cliff and hope somebody's building a swimming pool before they land. Well, we have with us today George A. Santino, who's lived a fascinating life. He's put it inside a new book called Get Back Up, which is what uh, most small businesses uh, do. Uh, sometimes two, three, four, five times uh, in their career. We asked George to join us because uh, his colorful career has many um, things to say to us. George, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Well, George, as we we, uh, ask all our guests, the the first question is always a little bit about themselves. But uh, in your case, uh, your whole life is all about yourself. So first, uh, I'm going to ask you a question. What made you decide to write this book? Well, I think that, you know, as I, as I grew up and as I tried many, many different things, a lot of different uh, entrepreneurial things, small businesses that, frankly, I made a number of mistakes and learned from and moved on and tried again and again and again, that... Uh, you know, I thought that this was a story that could be helpful, a story that could be inspirational or motivational, uh, because it's a story of, of obstacles. It's a story of setbacks. It's a story of, of having to uh, be tenacious and not be uh, willing to give up uh, every time you run into an obstacle. And uh, as someone who just read the book, you know that those obstacles were not just business failures, but those were physical uh issues i had to deal with uh through life as well as the uh, as well as the financial ones well, well our audience hasn't um, had the, the opportunity that i've had first uh, t- uh, t- uh tell us a little bit about your background growing up in philadelphia and other places and how that affected you 
Well, I grew up in the projects of South Philadelphia. My family, uh, father, mother, uh, seven uh, seven kids, living in a three-bedroom, one-house, three-bedroom, one-bathroom housing projects, Uh, extremely poor on welfare, on surplus food. This is before they had food stamps. So you'd go to a surplus food warehouse to get your powdered milk, powdered eggs, and uh, things like that to to eat. And, uh, you know, as I grew up and went to school and saw that other people had more, there were kids who had bikes and were going to the movies and had candy, that I decided that, uh, you know, there was a better life out there, and I had to find a way to, to get it for myself. That started by collecting soda bottles and trash cans because you could take them back to the store and get two cents a, a bottle for them to eventually uh, a guy came to town who was selling tomatoes from the back of a truck, and I went up to him and said, why don't you go door-to-door with these tomatoes? And he said, because I have to watch the truck. And at seven years old, I offered to take uh, tomatoes door-to-door and sell them. And for every bag I sold, the guy gave me a nickel. At the end of the first day, I sold 10 bags of tomatoes, had 50 cents, which was more money than I ever had in my life. That was enough for tons of penny candies, enough to go to the movies. It was it, it was a taste of the good life in the projects of South Philadelphia, and I decided that uh, I wanted more of that, and that was going to take work. Um, eventually, my, uh, my father, who was, who was uh, disabled, filed for Social Security. It took many, many years to get the money, but when he finally did get the money, they gave him a check all at once, and that allowed us to move down to uh, Tampa, Florida, where, uh, you know, as a teenager, I got jobs uh, – uh, mowing people's lawns, or uh, I got a job as a cleanup boy at the local Burger Chef, and where, whenever there was an opportunity to earn money, I got up there and tried to tried to do it. Okay, so so now you're in the teen years. What came next? Well, I I decided that I I wanted to go to college, but I couldn't afford to go to college. But if you joined the Army, this is back during the Vietnam War, and uh, actually the war was winding down, so I wasn't too worried about going to Vietnam. But I joined the Army so that the Army would pay for my college. But uh, Saturday, the first day of basic training, I got injured, ended up uh, uh, running through a, a glass window pane uh, thank, uh, because the drill sergeant decided for some reason to close it before I just reached the door while we were running down the stairs. Ended up in the hospital in the Army for a couple of months as they tried to repair my right hand and ultimately was discharged with a service-connected disability, uh, which was kind of my major, my first major setback. I wanted to go to college. I wanted the Army to pay for it, but that wasn't going to happen uh, now. So I went into uh, went back to that burger chef where I was a cleanup boy at 16 years of age, making 65 cents an hour, and applied for a, a manager trainee job which they didn't want to give me because I had no, no experience, no skills, but I was able to talk my way into it, uh, convincing them that uh, I had the ability to learn that uh, whatever they could teach, assuming they had the ability to teach it. And uh, so I got that job, and uh, a year later was managing the, managing the place. And I went from Burger Chef to Arby's to Wendy's, moving up in the in these organizations, and thought, okay, this is my career. I'm going to be a fast food restaurant manager. It's it's a, a decent job. It teaches you to multitask like no other job possibly can. I used to say that, uh, 
you know, as a manager, when you're hiring people, if you could hire people with fast food restaurant experience, you're getting some pretty good people because these people have great awareness. They're, they're used to working extremely hard. They have to multitask like, uh, like crazy. Uh, that's some very, very good skills to get in, in an employee. But uh, one day while working at the Wendy's and being a young kid uh, in his uh, early 20s, was hitting the discos at night and drank a little too much one night and driving home, crashed my car into a tree at 70 miles an hour. Woke up the next day in the hospital where the first person I saw was not a doctor but a priest. (laughs) And so yet another another setback. (laughs) Okay. Well, we know you rose from that. and How did you do it? I think well, by the end know, of this, we're going to be uh, hearing your entire life, but I think it's something worthwhile <laughs> for our audience. Well, you know, it's 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 that trip to the hospital that uh, started me on my entrepreneurial phase because I was so banged up and so injured. You know, my legs were hurt, my back was hurt, I had a big gash on my face, and they said it was going to take a lot of physical therapy to, to walk again. But, you know, I grew up in the projects. I grew up extremely poor. I grew up with a father who was who was uh, an alcoholic, who was addicted to prescription pain pills, who was who was disabled. And I didn't like that life. And when you're hearing, when doctors are telling you, now you're disabled, now you're hurt, and you're thinking, oh, my God, that is that my future? You get very motivated. <laughs> you decide, no, this is not my future. And you suffer through that physical therapy and you get out of there. And I realized that I really couldn't go back to the fast food restaurants and be on my feet. So I decided the next step for me was to go into uh, to sales. And I knew a guy who was selling life insurance. And I decided that was probably a good job to get into. I could be behind the desk. I could be in my car. I can be in people's homes uh, selling a product, and that would be a lot easier on me than uh, than working in the fast food industry. And so that's how I ultimately got into sales. They had a nice training program. That's when I learned all the things that salespeople learn about a no isn't a no. It's just a request for more information. You know, objections are just information that leads you to the sale. You know, all those all those cliches that became cliches because they're true. You know, and the life insurance business was more true than any. You're out there cold calling, and you've learned that every no gets you closer to the yes. You'd have to get you'd get something like 20 no's before you'd get that first yes. And early in that career, that was extremely frustrating. But my boss, my mentor, said, "These are the numbers. These are the statistics. You're going to get 20 no's before you get that first yes, and that just gets you the appointment. And out of five appointments, you're going to get four no's and one yes." And you have to learn to have a better attitude about sales to realize that, yes, each no does lead you to the, to the yes. And you have, to get, uh, you have to continue to move forward to try to make these, make these sales. Uh, you know, so go. after life, I was going to say that after um, – but real, uh, life insurance is a hard product to sell. People don't want to talk about death. They don't want to talk about You can't sell any product without first explaining the need for the product. And the need for life insurance is that you're going to die. 
and people don't want to have that conversation. <laughs> you know, so that was a hard product to sell. I did I did fairly well. I was made apprentice field underwriter of the month, uh, which meant I was pretty good at selling this stuff. But uh, I started. I was talking to this other guy who was selling real estate, and I decided, you know, real estate's probably a better product to sell than life insurance. And so I switched from life insurance to get into uh, to get into real estate. Okay, we're now into real estate, uh, George. I'm going to let you do all the talking because you're a fascinating guest. Okay. Okay. So the real estate stuff went extremely well, but now you're selling a product that people want, you know, families just starting out. They want to have their first, their first home, but this was around the time of the get rich quick schemes. This was no money down seminars everywhere. People selling cassette tapes and seminars and, and magazines on how we could all get rich by going out and buying real estate for no money down. Uh, and so when I was out there listing real estate and selling it as a realtor, I decided that it might be better to be an investor. And one day a guy came in and said, I'd like to sell my house. And it was a pretty good price. I told him I could probably get more for him. But he said that, uh, no, no, this is the price I want. And I decided I would, I would buy the house myself and fix it up and, and turn it around. Uh, the house appraised well. And so I was able to actually offer him more than he was asking if he credited back some of the monies to me as, a, as the buyer for closing costs or repairs or things like that. So I actually bought my first house for not no money down, but for the house and $5,000. So I thought, hey, I'm a genius. I'm smarter than these no money down guys because I got a house and I got them to pay me to take the house. You know, but what the no money down guys didn't tell you is that just because you're not putting cash out of your pocket doesn't mean there's not costs. In this case, the cost was typically a second mortgage. You have a house with an assumable FHA or VA mortgage on it. You want $50,000 for it. You you owe $40,000. Well, I'll give you the $50,000. I'll take over your $40,000 mortgage. You take back a second for the ten. no money down. Well, that's great, but now you have all this uh, debt to cover, and you're going to rent the house out and hoping that it covers your first and second mortgage, which it typically doesn't. <laughs> and so then you have this negative cash flow. The guys don't tell you about that in the seminars. You know, I was going to write another book called Real Estate Investing, The Other Side of the Coin, <laughs> because there is that other part. You know, I didn't realize that at the at the time, and so after a while, I owned a couple of houses with some serious negative cash flow, and it was my hope that they would appreciate in value at some point, and they didn't. And uh, eventually, we had to sell them and and take a loss, and that was my next learning experience. That you know, there is no free lunch. <laughs> no money down does not mean it's not going to cost you money, <laughs> and uh, and get rich quick wasn't the way to go. I started to think that the real thing is to get rich slow. Find a way to start to invest and to and to build up your money over time. Uh, it's interesting to me that you hear a lot of the investment gurus of the day saying, when you're young, you can take risks. You can take all these risks, try this, try that. And because when you lose the money, you'll have time to bounce back. But when you're older, you have to be a little more conservative when you invest. Well, you know, if you're conservative when you're young 
and you don't have to start over and over again because you had time back, then by the time you're older, you'll have a lot more money. <laughs> That's another thing that you don't get told out there, right? You got time to bounce back, so take these risks. Well, how about we don't take some of these risks? and start to accumulate money over time. And this is the advice I'm giving my children. Yes, I tried all the things and failed. You don't necessarily have to do the, the same thing. Well, after, after that stint, I decided it was probably time to go back to work and go back to Wendy's or something where the money was going to come in and steady. And I actually met a guy who said, why don't we go into business together and open up a sports bar? I thought, gee, that sounds like fun to me. It's a lot better than working at, at a Wendy's. Well, this is where you know another, yet another lesson was learned about undercapitalization. You know, people tell me, what are what are the reasons that small business fail? You know, and a couple of big ones are overexpansion and undercapitalization. Well, we were about to have one to fail for undercapitalization. Of course, we didn't know it at the time, because in our attitude, we were so emotionally attached to opening up this sports bar, to getting this thing opened up that. We assumed that once the doors were open, the customers would come flowing in and we'd have plenty of money. So as we were building it and getting the place ready for, to open, we realized we ran out of money. We didn't have enough, enough money for an ice machine. We didn't have enough money for a grill. We didn't even have enough money to build walls between the kitchen and the restaurant. But we didn't care because once we got it open, the money would come flowing in. Well, we were idiots. <laughs> once we got it open... Customers came in, the food was good, the service was good, but the place was a big, wide-open warehouse. We're running around back and forth to 7-Eleven to get bags of ice because we didn't have an ice machine. And so we decided, well, this isn't going to work. So we got out our credit cards and borrowed some money to open up, uh, to buy the rest of the stuff we needed. But, you know, you only get one chance to make a first impression. So a lot of people who'd come into the restaurant, it was hard to get them to come, uh, come back. We eventually had to bring a partner in uh, to try to help us, and he brought in money that allowed us to put up the walls and allowed us to get the rest of the equipment we needed. We eventually got the place to where it was breaking even and doing okay, but it was never going to really get over that uh, get over that hump. Uh, and so we ultimately ended up selling the place, you know, which wasn't really it was a setback, but at the same time, it was a tremendous learning experience about undercapitalization. You need to sit down. When you're going to open up a business, you need to sit down and do some research. You need to figure out, look at other businesses that are doing similar things. Try to figure out the cost structure early. What is it going to take to open this thing? Figure out what you're going to need you know, and, and go beyond that. Don't think, well, maybe I'll need it. Maybe I won't need it. No, you're going to need it. If you think you might, you're going to need it. And so a, a budget for that as well. Don't assume the sales are going to come in from day one because even if they do, that would be nice. But assume that you're going to have to take care of this place. You're going to have to pay these bills for six months to a year before any real revenue is coming in. And if you can't walk in the door and say, I now have a bit enough money to do the leasehold improvements, to pay the fees and taxes, to buy the equipment I need, to buy the inventory, to hire the employees, to do the advertising, and be able to absorb no income for a certain period of time, then don't open it. Just go take your money and flush it down the toilet. It'll be faster. <laughs> it won't be as hard, and the work won't be as hard. Uh, so that was a lesson of really planning around opening these, this, uh, this business. Um, 
So here we are again, yet another venture that didn't didn't work out, but a lot of lessons were learned. And this is where, you know, when I had the sports bar, one of the vendors that called on us was a uh, was a liquor salesman, the guy who sold us a beer and wine and that kind of stuff. And he asked me what I was going to do next, and I said, well, I like kind of owning my own business, but you know, I also like a job too, where the money's coming in. So he offered me a job to be a uh, to be a liquor salesman for their company. And so that's what I ended up doing after the uh, after the um, uh, the fast after the uh, after the sports bar, and this is where my life took the worst turn of all, because one day while I was one of my accounts called me and said they were out of beer, I told them I'd bring a couple of cases of beer to them, and as I was lifting it out of the trunk of my car without bending at the knee, I ruptured a disc in my back. Oh boy! That took. That took a major operation. That and this was back in the early '80s. This was back before there was arthroscopic surgery. This was back before there were titanium rods. This is, this was a major operation. You know, eight-inch incision in your back. You're in intensive care later because you've lost so much blood. Um, but I was young. They told me you'll bounce back. You'll be fine. And I wasn't fine. And you know, to, to jump ahead a little, two years later, I was on my third back operation, a four-level fusion, as I said before, titanium rods. So they basically scraped bone off my pelvis to build a fusion out of my own bone. And uh, in the end of it said, you have failed back syndrome. You're 100% disabled. You'll never work again. Nothing we can do for you. We did everything we could. And there I sat, or there I lay in my bed, taking my Percocet, Vicodin, Flexero every day, completely doped up in serious pain, being told by multiple doctors, you might as well apply for social security disability because you're never going to work again. And that was a, that was an extremely low point in my life. And, uh, you know, I realized that, uh, while my back was hurting all the time, I was taking these pills. And when I was taking these pills, I couldn't think. So I was kind of trading my brain for my pain. And it, was, it wasn't the life I signed up for. And I had to find a way to try to, to get back on my feet and, uh, and do something. But I, I couldn't walk that far. I couldn't stand that long. And I remembered that when I owned the sports bar, next door was a shoe repair. And the shoe repair was owned by was was the shoe repairman was a guy by the name of Glenn DeMarrow, and he moved he had since moved to Cleveland and opened up his own shoe repair. So I called him and said, "How'd you like to go into shoe repair business together?" Even though I knew nothing of fixing shoes, but I did know something about sales and I did know something about uh, marketing. And so he decided that he would come back to Tampa and we'd open up a shoe repair shop. And this time we had learned our lesson. I didn't open up a 3,000-square-foot spot with no walls and no ice machine like we did in the restaurant. We opened up a small 400-square-foot spot. You know, we had a tiny counter, enough room in the back for the shoe repair equipment, and most importantly, a lounge chair because most of the day I was laying down. I was not walking. I was not standing on my feet but I could write ads for the newspaper. I could shine shoes. I could do the books. I could do all that laying on my back in, in, the, in the shoe repair. And though my back was still destroyed and I was still in pain, I stopped taking the pills. And Glenn and I were able to build a fairly successful business. In the end of, 
just a couple of years, we ended up having uh, three shoe repairs, and we were paying so much money in taxes, we decided we needed to shelter some of it, and so that's how you can buy houses again. You can rent them out. You could depreciate them. You could take the uh, you could take the write-offs. And five years later, we owned three shoe repairs and fifteen single-family homes. We lived in nice houses. We drive nice cars, and life was good for a while. <laughs> and the next lesson was learned about the other thing that kills businesses: overexpansion. <laughs> because. That's exactly what we did. We were just growing so fast and doing so many things that, uh, you know, the, the, the shoe repairs were making a lot of money. They were paying the negative cash flow on the houses. And uh, when my friend Glenn ended up getting divorced and his wife got a lawyer and he got a lawyer, the house of cards came all crashing down. And oh, uh, fairly soon after that, we were declaring corporate and personal bankruptcy. And loading all of our stuff on a U-Haul truck. <laughs> so as you can see, there were a number of opportunities to learn, you know, through the small businesses we owned about planning, undercapitalization, overexpansion, uh, those sorts of uh, those sorts of things. Uh, but in the end, it was the it was the physical things. It was the car accident. It was the back operations that ultimately became the real challenge uh, for me. In the end, we had lost everything in Tampa, Florida. We loaded up all of our stuff in a U-Haul truck and headed out to California because I had taught myself a lot about computers. I had taught myself a lot about spreadsheets and word processing, uh, you know, to, to manage these businesses, to manage these houses. And I thought I could head out to California and get a job in the, in the computer industry. Little did I know they didn't want to hire anybody without a college degree or any formal training, so I ended up working at a Wendy's. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it, your life is fascinating, but, but I know you ended up a Microsoft executive. How did that happen? Well, when I, when I got to California... And I ultimately had to take the job at the Wendy's. I actually couldn't do it. You know, my back was shot. I was in so much pain. It was unbelievable. I would go to work, you know, put in my shift, and I'd go home, and I'd have to go right to bed to lay down to, to, to relieve the pain in my back. And at some point, I had to start taking the pain pills again. I had to start taking the, the, the uh, Percocet and, you know, just to get through the night. And I said, this is, here we go again. This is not the spiral that we want. And this is not why I came to California. I came here to uh, to work in, in software. And so, uh, you know, I tried a number of different things. Eventually, you know, I did end up applying at Microsoft, and I sent them a, I sent them a resume, and they immediately sent me a rejection letter. And going back to my real estate days and my life insurance days, a no is not a no. It's just a request for more information. So I called them and said I, I sent them my resume. I got my I got a form letter saying thanks but no thanks. Uh, I like to know the reasons why, uh, you know, just so I can learn from them. And and they said, well, you don't have a college degree, and that's where you know when you're in sales, you learn that sometimes objections aren't exactly what the objection is, and you have to work through it to find out what the real reason is. 
And when they said you don't have a college degree, I knew that couldn't be the real reason, even though I didn't have a college degree, because Bill Gates didn't have a college degree. And I reminded them of that and said, you do realize the guy who founded the company doesn't have a college degree. And they said, well, you're certainly not comparing yourself to Bill Gates, are you? And I said, only in as far as he doesn't have a college degree, yes. <laughs> That's how I'm comparing myself to Bill Gates. And the lady said, well, it wasn't really the college degree. It's, you know, a college is something people go to and they start it and it takes four years. And we like to see that people can start and finish something. I said, oh, well, okay, I understand that. But you realize that back in 1974, when I would have gone to college, there weren't personal computers yet. And so I would have gotten a degree in business management. And instead of getting a degree in business management, I have 17 years of business management experience. And she said, well, that's, that's a pretty good point. Uh, would you mind coming in for an interview tomorrow and talking to some people? So I overcame that, that objection and went in there and, and did an interview with their people. And I thought I did very, very well. And a couple of days later, I got another rejection letter from them. And so once again, I called and said, oh, thank you for <laughs> the letter. I'm curious as to what the reason was. I'd like to learn from the extent I go out and apply for other jobs and and so she told me their, their new objection. You know, we're looking for people with five years Windows testing experience. And I was able to then talk about the fact that since Windows, since Microsoft just shipped Windows 3.0, there really wasn't anybody with five years Windows testing experience because nobody used this thing until 3.0 came out. In fact, the people I were ta was talking to were, was where they were developing PowerPoint. And PowerPoint was, was uh company called Forethought Computing that just had recently been purchased by Microsoft, and they were a Mac shop. So I was able to explain that even the people there at PowerPoint didn't have five years Windows testing experience because they were a Mac shop. And so once again, I overcame that objection, and I went in again, where I was turned down again, <coughs> called them back. You know, this happened four times. Before finally the lady said, you know, you certainly are tenacious. <laughs> I said, yes, I am tenacious. That's one thing I am. So my attitude, well, and most people have given up after the first or second objection, but my attitude is you have to have the information. You don't want to have regrets in life. You don't want to sit back and say, had I asked this question, what would have happened? Or had I done this, what would have happened? And that's true whether it's in business or it's in life. You don't want to step back and say, yeah, I broke up with my girlfriend, and, gee, I wonder if I'd have said this or done that. You know, leave it all on the table. Say what you're going to say. Ask the question. Worst case, you learn something from it. And I wasn't going to walk away from Microsoft when the objections I knew I could overcome, so I continued to call them back. But in the end, what they did was they said, well, I know that you have a lot of hardware experience. And I said, yeah, I have hardware experience. And so they ended up offering me a job running their lab, running their test lab. And at that point, I was so frustrated. I had talked to these people so many times that I said, look, I will take the job sweeping the floors if that's what it takes to get in there. And the lady said, well, it's funny you should say that because keeping the lab clean would be a part of your responsibilities. So I thought, okay, I have a job at Microsoft as a cleanup boy like I had when I was 16 years old at Burgersack. Well, many, many years ago when I took that job at Burger Chef at 16 years old as the cleanup boy, two years later I was running that Burger Chef. I was the manager of that Burger Chef. 
And I said, that's what I'm going to do here. They want to hire me as their lab coordinator. They want to hire me to keep the lab clean. That's fine. I went home and I told my wife, I have two jobs now. From 9 until 6, Monday through Friday, I'm going to be the best damn lab coordinator those people have ever seen. And from 6 until 9, Monday through Friday, and 10 until 4 on Saturday, I'm going to do software testing. I'm going to test their products. I'm going to find bugs. I'm going to enter them in their database, and I'm going to see what if I can become a software tester, get out of that lab. And after about three months, they were expanding to the point where they needed more software testers, and they came to me and said, uh, hey, George, would you want to you be a software tester? And I said, yes, of course I want to be a software tester. And so I learned that and one way to be successful in a career is first determine what the company rewards. What does your boss value? What do they reward and start to do those things? And Microsoft, it was all about results. You know, are you producing? Are you getting the results? Are you exceeding your goals and objectives? The other thing was if you wanted an opportunity at Microsoft, Microsoft wasn't the kind of company that's where you could say, give me that job and I'll show you what I could do. That's not the way it works there. There is, you know, demonstrate the ability first. You want to be a software tester, start testing software. You want to be a lead, start being a leader. And that was my next step. After they made me a software tester, I said, I want to be a test lead. I want to manage people. I, that's what I do. And so I started doing leadership things. And once they expanded to the point that we needed to hire some more test leads, you know, the product unit manager of the place told my boss, well, you need to hire some test leads. And I assume George is already one because he's already doing this stuff. So after just a year, I was a test lead. Well, I continued to do that throughout my entire career to say, what is that next job I want? What are the things you have to demonstrate to get it? And so I went from entry-level entry lab coordinator sweeping floors to test lead, to test manager, to director of test, to product unit manager, and eventually over 17 years became partner engineering manager and three years later retired. What a fascinating, what a fascinating life. <laughs> and you, you've, you've told it brilliantly. Uh, can, uh, here's a, this is a dangerous question. Uh, in all of these travails, uh, have you remained married, or uh, how ha, uh, has been your wife in all of this? Well, my wife, I, I met my wife when I was a manager at Wendy's. You know, she was working there, I was working there, and we met there, and we dated for, for a couple of years and, and got married. And... Uh, I asked her, you know, many years later, you know, we went through a lot of stuff together, you know, through being told I was 100% disabled to being in the hospital back and forth for years to business failures, to bankruptcies, to all these, all these setbacks. And she said, you know, what I, one of the things that, was drawn, that, that drew me to you was your ambition. You had this drive, you had this desire to, to have more, and you were willing to work for it. And I just knew that eventually it would work. I just knew that it was going to happen. And so she had this confidence in me, and frankly, sometimes more confidence in me than I had in myself at some, at some points in time. And she said, you know, I knew that it was going to, to work out. And so she, yeah, she let me try all these different things. And when they failed, we learned from them, and we, and we moved on. Uh, we've been married 35 years. We have uh, four grown kids. 
one of them working at Microsoft right now, another one starting an internship at Microsoft on Monday, the other two uh, are studying computer science in college and hope to work for Microsoft. So uh, Microsoft uh, ended up being the place where that changed it all, changed our lives, and now the second generation of Santinos is about the is is heading there as as well, and uh, you know it was a it was a hell of a ride. And it was it was never easy. Even the years at Microsoft, I was moving up were were interrupted many times by trips to the hospital, trips to the emergency room as the back gave out again and again and again. There was a period of time there where I couldn't walk at all, and I was in a wheelchair for uh, for a while. But you can't let this stuff stop you. I mean, life life deals the hand. You can fold the hand. You can give up if you want. And sometimes it's, it's going to be harder than others. But, you know, it, it, this, this, this conversation started with, you know, why did you write the book? And as I think about it, I think it's a story that needs to be told, especially right now. Right now you have all these people running for president. You got the Democrat. You got the Republican. You got the socialist. They're all saying the same stuff. You're a victim. The deck is stacked against you. The system is rigged. The American dream is dead. You don't stand a chance unless, of course, you vote for me. And that's just bull. Life is full of obstacles. It's full of challenges. But anything you want is still achievable. You have to get out there. You have to be willing to work. You have to find that job. When you hear the objections, you have to figure out why, what those objections really mean and overcome them. And when you get the job, you have to find out what it takes to be successful at that company, what your manager values, what they reward, and you need to do those things better than anybody else. And that is how you, that's how you get ahead. And you can complain all the time. You can say, oh, minimum wage is too low. It should be higher. Okay, fine. Make it higher. But is $15 an hour any more of a livable wage than $7.65? No. You're still going to have to do these things. So don't be a victim because when you're a victim, when you're, when you're counting on the government to take care of you, that's just a life of survival. That's not a life of success. Those opportunities still exist. And I wanted to get out there and tell that story. I wanted to get out there and say the American dream is alive and well. It's in each and every one of us. You just have to be willing to do the work. George, I could not agree um, more with you. Uh, that, that is abso- absolutely true. Um, and, and your uh, book proves it and your life proves it. Um, uh, we're talking with George Santino. His book is Get Back Up. I assume you can get it at Amazon and Barnes & Noble, etc. Oh, yeah. Is that right? It's, it's there. That is right. All right. Um, You know, we have a lot of authors on this program, but uh, seldom one with as inspirational a story as you've given us today, George. Uh, One question. Do you still have trouble with your back, or have you managed somehow to overcome it with with the help of medical people? Uh, I still have trouble with my back. I, I, at one point, I went to seven different doctors. I said, I'm going to find a doctor that's going to fix me once and for all. And thankfully, the last doctor said to me, there's nothing we can do. There's just too much damage in there. The four-level fusion is old. It's made from bone. It's got some cracks in it. The discs above your fusion have tears in them. There's arthritis back there. There's scar tissue back there. And 
it's it's kind of like, you know, you go to a car dealership today to get your car fixed. You got these new fangled computers. They plug it into your car. They figure out what's wrong with it. You bring in a 57 Chevy, they can't do that. They can't use the new techniques on the 57 Chevy. So even though they have titanium rods now and, and arthroscopic surgery and even artificial discs, my back's the 57 Chevy. So it's just a matter of time before it fails again. It hurts every day. Every day I crawl out of bed, the first thing I do is get on the floor and stretch and stretch my back and try to move around. I go to uh, physical therapy. In fact, I'll be going to physical therapy as soon as I get off this call. Uh, and it's just with me. The pain is just a part of of who I am now. And eventually I'll end up back in that wheelchair. And when I do, I'll, I'll just, instead of walking places, I'll roll places. You can't, I mean, this is, you get the one life and you play the cards that are dealt. And so uh, it's pain and you just have to deal with it. I wish I didn't have it. Some days are better than others. Some days I'm not getting out of bed. I'm staying in it for a day or two until the, and the pain subsides. But when I'm out of it, I'm doing all the best I can do. Well, George, um, you've been an inspiration to myself and I hope for our audience. And we want you to come back. Uh, we really want to thank you for getting up early this morning and being with us. Sure, I was happy to do it and, and glad to talk with you anytime. I, I, you know, as my wife will tell you, I definitely like to talk. <laughs> well, um, in this case, we're sure glad you did. Thank you, George, for <laughs> just a wonderful you're program. Very, oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, with lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.